Have you ever heard someone tell you to really niche down and get specific on the product or the service that you offer? There are lots of photographers out there, but only one Grace Chan. Grace specializes in pet photography. She has published two books, Waggish, Dog Smiling for Dog Reasoned, and Puppy Styled, Japanese Dog Grooming Before and After. Who else wants copies of both? I'm raising my hand right now. She has also worked with clients and celebs like Ojoy, Purina, Lance Bass, and Tinder. Y'all, this is the Creative Queso Podcast, and I am Jennifer Perkins. Each week, I chat about the business of being creative and the creativity behind running a business. Y'all, I can't believe it has taken me almost 25 interviews and three seasons to chat with a professional photographer. The amazing thing about today's guest, Grace Chan, is that she is not just a photographer. She's also a podcaster and the host of the Creativity School. Be sure to subscribe because I'll I'll be a guest on her podcast in an upcoming episode. But you know, whether you're a photographer, soap maker, blogger, or illustrator, Grace and I cover all the things in this episode, leaps of faith to follow your true passions, imposter syndrome, and you know we go woo-woo, it's my favorite. I can't wait to hear what you think of today's episode of the Creative Queso Podcast. All right. Hey, Grace. I am excited to have you here today on Creative Queso. I am so excited to be here. Thanks for having me. Of course. You know, I thought we would start like from the very beginning of your life story because, you know, as I do, I like to cyber stalk everybody. So you, even though your adoring fans know you as a pet photographer, you actually have a degree in biology, right? I do. Yeah. So I'm Korean American. I feel like I have to go really far back to explain this to you. So I'm Korean American. (laughs) I'm Korean American. My parents are Korean immigrants. They came to the United States in 1970, literally with two suitcases and $500 in cash. And that's it. Because that's all the South Korean government would allow people to leave the country with at the time. And my mom was a nurse, my dad was an engineer, and they came here and became dry cleaners. And so for them, it was really all about finding the American dream here. You know, South Korea back in 1970 is not the South Korea that we know today. There was no K-pop and K-beauty. You know, they're they're recovering from the Korean War still. You know, my parents grew up in the war. So for them, it was all about coming to America to have a better life for their children. And that meant getting a professional job. And I say that with air quotes because professional job. What does that mean? It's like, well, not working in a dry cleaners. It's working in a white collar job somewhere where you're not dealing with people's dirty clothes and chemicals and dust and dirt. And they really wanted me to be a doctor, hence my biology degree. (laughs) So yeah, I went to college. I got a biology degree. And then, uh, man, the thing is, I was always creative, even as a child. Like, My earliest memories are just making things, playing with art supplies. And my parents were so supportive of that. You know, anytime I showed interest in something like, um, you know, if I picked up a certain kind of art supply, they'd buy me more of it or they'd put me into art class. They were so encouraging and supportive of it. But by the time I reached junior high school, it was kind of like, Grace, you know, it's great that you like these things, but this can never, ever be a job. You need to become a doctor. Mm. So... 
I listened, you know, and it's not like I knew any better. It's not like I knew it was possible to make money and have a successful career as a creative. You know, that's why I think representation is so important because first of all, like growing up in my family, I didn't see examples of really anybody being creative. You know, we were so focused on academics and going to med school. And even just as an Asian American, I didn't see Asian Americans being creative. Right. And so it's not like I knew any better. And I believe my parents thinking this was the best path for me. So I went to school, I got my biology degree the whole time, you know, I'm still being creative. Um, I got really into web design and graphic design as a hobby. And by my senior year of college, I realized, wow, like people make money being graphic designers. And there's this, there's this whole industry called advertising where people are, are being really creative and funny and witty and emotional and all these different things. And they're getting paid for it. And I, I didn't even know this existed until my senior year of college. And so I was like, okay, I'm going to apply to grad school in an art program try to get an MFA in this to make my mom happy because at least I'm getting a master's degree out of this. And (laughs) if I get in, then so be it. This is my new path. And if I don't get in, my mom's like, well, you're just going to go to pharmacy school. And I got in. So I went from biology degree to moving 3,000 miles away from home to San Francisco to go to art school. Uh, And I worked in the ad industry for a number of years as an art director. As one does, you know, i I was telling you, I have a psych degree. So, you know, and he, and I'm a crafter and a podcaster. Yeah. So sometimes that sometimes that happens. So did they have your parents ever? I'm curious because I have a very I mean, my dad's just from Peoria, Illinois, but I have a very similar story to where it was never like an option to go, you know, to do something creative for a living or to go to art school. Even my sister wanted to go to art school. And I think my parents were like, no, mm-mm, we're not going to pay for that. So have your parents ever come back and been like, okay, you were right. (laughs) You can make a living taking a picture of adorable dogs. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, You know, when I wanted to go to art school, my father passed away when I had just turned 13. And when I wanted to go to art school, my mom was so dead set against it. And Mm -hmm. I had to tell her, you know, I'm sorry, but I I love you and I respect you, but this is what I want to do. I'm not asking you for anything. I'm not asking you for money. You know, I took out student loans. I worked my whole way through art school. And at that point, she really couldn't say anything. You know, Mm -hmm. I made up my mind I was going to do it. And so um, I think she saw early on when I was in art school, wow, like she's actually doing this and she's kind of good at it. You know, like I got an internship and I had a job before I even graduated school and I started winning awards in the ad industry very early on in my career. So I think that kind of gave her the confidence to be like, okay, my daughter is not completely crazy and she knows what she's doing. So when the day came, when I decided to quit my advertising job, I had just received a raise, by the way. My partner and I had um, come up with a bunch of commercials that did really well. We just got raises it was 2008. So everyone was losing their jobs left and right because of the great recession. And then I'm like, I'm going to quit my job and be a pet photographer. And everyone thought I was crazy. But my mom was like, I trust you. And I couldn't believe oh, that's that. Good. Wow. Yeah. She was like, I saw what you did with art school and getting into advertising. I didn't understand. I realized there are so many things about this country and the kinds of jobs that you can have that I don't know about. And I trust you and I support you. Oh, can can I give her my dad's number and she can call him? <laughs> I know, right? He, he literally just sent me within the last two weeks, like a text about like, 
graduate programs in psychology and like, did you know you could make this much money if you just had your master's degree? It's like, let it go, Dan, let it go. You know, it's so funny you mentioned that because, you know, up until, I mean, I've been doing this for what, 11, 12 years now. And I would say at least halfway through that, she was still like, are you sure you don't want to go to pharmacy school? (laughs) Right. I know. I always joke that like when I like finally, when I got like a giant spread in the Wall Street Journal, like he quit sending me like job clippings from like the Dallas Morning News. I was like, (laughs) all right, like we're finally on board here. I don't know why he's, you know, going back. He's backpedaling a little bit now, but. Well, it was the Wall Street Journal. So that must have made it like so credible. I would have thought it was like seeing you on TV. Yeah, no, that like was like, oh, that's cute. Like you're on TV. Yeah, no, that sucker is like framed and hanging in their kitchen. Um, (laughs) You know, it's funny is like when you told me that story about the recession, I had heard this like bit of information about like money and pets and things like this before. But I looked it up before we talked and it was that. Let me see. uh, Pet care spending even grew during the past two recessions, 29 percent during the 2001 recession and 17 percent during the 2008 2009 recession. Like even when like things are bad, people are like, oh, but I will spare no expense for my puppy. Absolutely. And you know, what's so funny you mentioned that is I didn't realize that was the case. Like, it's not like I decided to quit my job and do this because I realized, oh, the pet industry is recession proof and I can still make money doing this. Like when you're in it, you don't realize that's what's happening. So like in, in hindsight, we can go back and say, oh, wow. And it was recession proof. The pet industry kept growing. People felt like crap because they're losing their jobs and their pets made them feel safe and secure and happy. So they're going to spare no expense on them. But like when you're in it, You don't realize that. And so Mm -hmm. I say this because I think what's so interesting about about creating your own path and following your intuition into into creating your own career, it's like it's really about following what feels right for you. It's like picking up breadcrumbs. And that's all I did. And it just happened to hit during this time when the pet industry just blew up even more than it was before the recession. Yeah, it's just exactly. Sometimes you just got to follow your gut and go like, you know, what feels right? When did, you know, when should I do this? And, you know, the other thing, too, that I think is interesting, and I've done interviews about this before, is with the 2001 recession, that was when 9-11 happened. Mm. And so for me in my industry, I think a lot of people at that time turned inwards and wanted to just stay home and were kind of fearful. And one of the things you do at home is you like craft and, you know, just kind of make things. There was this big, I find that when there was like scary stuff going on in the world or in the economy, like sometimes people like they turn to the crafts and maybe they turn to the the pet love. That's really Dude. interesting. Yeah, I, I know, never, right? I never knew that about crafts and it really makes so much sense. I think there's a b- very big parallel there for sure. Mm-hmm. So, you know, besides also doing pet photography, you also have your podcast, Creativity School, which I love. So you are a firm believer that creativity is not something only a select few people have. So you think like everybody's got it? I I really do. I think that this belief that only special people are creative is is such a myth. And I think that there's absolutely a spectrum of creativity. So I think people think that only the chosen few have it because we're looking at like the creative freaks out there who are like way on the other end of the spectrum, like Mm -hmm. Mozart or like, you know, whatever. My brain is dead right now. But just thinking of other super creative genius freaks, right? We look at them and we think, oh, I'm not like that. So I'm not creative. 
But creativity is absolutely a spectrum. We are all creative. And how do I know this is because have you ever met a child that's not creative? It's true. No, it's like innate. It's like if you are human, you are creative. You were born to be creative. And it's really taught out of us. You know, mm-hmm. through well-meaning adults, through the education system, it's not valued in a lot of homes. It's not, it's, re- I mean, a lot of well-meaning parents, it's not encouraged. And so this thing that we're all born with and is so innate in us really gets educated out of us. No, absolutely. And sometimes like accidentally or inadvertently, like we both talked about with our our parents, not that they weren't encouraging of us being creative, but they definitely weren't encouraging of us like you could do this as like a job. You know, it got to the point where I was like, that's cute that you like to craft, but let's get serious. Exactly. Exactly. So, I know. I wonder about my kids sometimes. I'm like, are they going to like never take anything like being a doctor seriously? Because all they know is like gluing stuff to stuff as a career path. I, you know, and it's funny because I think about that, too. And then like I have this resistance come up like, oh, my God, but if he wants to be a pet photographer, how's he going to make it? <laughs> like, yeah, like I, I right. refer back to my, my parents. It's so funny. I know. We can't help it. We just always want the best and the easiest path. And we know as freelancers that, you know, it's not always easy. No. And I think that's, you know, with my show, I really want to talk to people about not just how to create great work, but how to do the inner work on the inside so that you can create that great work on the outside because it's really tandem. They go hand in hand. And girl, I did not realize how much inner work I had to do. Um, when I started this journey, like 11, 12 years ago, you know, it was like, I just, I just want to take pet photographs and, and make a living at this. But there was so much of my own internal crap that I had to deal with to overcome, to be able to rise to a level of success. And I think that's pe- something people don't really even think about. And on my show, I really want to get into all of that, you know, dealing with all your inner demons, get the, get the fear and the anxiety and the mm-hmm. perfectionism out of the way so that you can make the best work possible. Yeah, no, I definitely I hear you touching on that. Like I hear you and your woo woo in there a little bit (laughs) in the podcast. No, and I completely agree. I find that a lot of times and I'm guilty of this as well, that sometimes creatives are their own worst enemy Mm -hmm. about things, you know, like trying to just get past their own things and just, you know, in the self-doubt and the imposter syndrome. So I completely agree that sometimes you got to. You got to make it work from the inside before you can ever like make a living from it. You do. You do because, you know, it's really personal. You know, when you're when you're trying to make a living with your creativity, it's personal. It's not like like for you, you're a secretary. You know, it's like that's not personal. You know, Mm -hmm. when I was an art director, the work I'm making, it's not personal. It's like when you are making stuff, you're putting your your soul. It's like your insides are coming out and people are there to see it and to critique it and to like it enough to buy it. That makes you so vulnerable. You're like a naked baby. <laughs> you know? And it's exactly. Like, it's like, how do you put your insides out there for the world to consume without doing the inner work and getting strong enough on the inside to validate yourself, to love yourself, to be strong enough to withstand criticism? You, you cannot do it without that. And if you do do it without that, I think you can end up really messed up. Like, look at a lot of celebrities. They're really messed up. Even exactly. artists. They're like no, for souls, sure. you know? I mean, I I begin to understand these addiction problems after a while. You're like, if you don't do the work, I'm telling you. Yeah, you numb yourself. Exactly. No, I mean, I totally agree. And I heard you talk about um, imposter syndrome and how that came up for you with your podcast. And you and I have talked about this before, how that's like, it's not something I've ever really dealt with and personally in my creative work. But as a podcaster, somehow it's like 
it's like creeping in. Like he's just like, hey, you're not really, a po- you can't do this. You're not really a podcaster. Do you have any like theories on why this is happening? Like, you know, I can only speak from my personal experience with starting my podcast. Um, you know, I started my in January. So it's been like six or seven months. And that was the, uh, that was so scary. Like just the thought of having a podcast made me want to cry. It was so scary, but and made me want to throw up at the same time. Right. And I think it's because for so long, I was able to just put my photography out there as a product. Mm-hmm. And I felt like it was separate from me. Like it was almost like I could hide behind my photography, but you're not consuming my thoughts, my insecurities, my knowledge, like me. It's not me. It's a product of me, but it's not me. And with podcasting, I felt so exposed. It's like, wow, you are literally hearing my voice in your ear. And for a show to be really good, I think it has to be authentic. You have to hear the real me. Otherwise, what's the point of doing this? So just knowing that I'm going to expose myself, take off all the masks, just truly be myself and have that out there for consumption, scared the crap out of me. On top of the fact with the imposter syndrome, it's like there are so many other shows out there about creativity. Like who mm-hmm. am I? Who am I to be a voice in this conversation? Why do? Why should I have a seat at this table? And to really overcome that, um, it took a lot of work, but I did it. Right. I mean, God, I'm still working on it. It's hard. It's so it hard. It is. It is hard. I know. Gosh, we we need a support group for us. We really do. <laughs> no, I agree. I totally have always felt that way. When it was like something I made, like it felt like something else as opposed to this podcast, which is more like, you know, my knowledge and information. I mean, I even started to convince myself I was like perimenopausal and like blocking out words. Like I was like every like psychosomatic thing, like, and you've got brain fog. So you can't be a podcaster because you can't think of your words or the questions and like, but you, you know, what's so interesting is I feel like this comes up anytime we do something new. Did you, did you, does that happen with you? It totally does. And I think that's exactly what's happening. But I also feel like maybe it's just like this cathartic thing that like I need to do. And like, you know, it's my body kind of bucking the system on it. Like, don't do it. Don't do it. It's scary. It's new. It's different. But then like once I'm like, you know, through the hurdle, I'll be like so glad I did and know that this is where I was meant to be all along. Absolutely. Or I'm hoping that's what happens. Well, I find this with anything that I do. In the beginning, it's so scary. It makes me want to vomit. And then, like, really, truly, like, it's so scary. I want to cry. And then the more I do it, the more resilience I build to it. It's like that little naked baby skin starts getting a little bit thicker. And it's like, I'm wearing a little sweater. I don't know. Like, I don't feel sweater. and vulnerable. It's almost like it's almost like the vulnerability starts feeling comfortable. There's this really amazing therapist named Marissa Peer. She talks about how fear is just feeling really, really uncomfortable. And it feels like the same thing as excitement in your body. So it's like if you can make that fear turn into excitement in your body, it feels the same. So it's like you want to just sort of trick your brain and say, I'm excited instead of saying I'm scared. And then things are really hard when they're new. Like we're so conditioned to crave what's familiar. And so podcasting is so unfamiliar. It makes us feel like crap. (laughs) 
no, for sure. Do you find like, I'm just going to go down a little diatribe here for the other podcasters that are listening because I know I have some. Do you ever, do you feel like you get imposter syndrome more on the episodes where it's just you, like waxing poetic on a topic all alone? Because I know you have a few episodes like that and so do I. Or the ones where you have a guest, like a big guest, like which one do you feel like you get imposter syndrome the most on? I think it's definitely when I'm by myself. Cause again, it's like, I don't have a guest to bounce off of. I don't have a guest to sort of a buffer. It's literally just me spilling my guts, sharing my knowledge, my insights, my advice, my thoughts. How do you feel? Do you think that's scarier? You know, I go back and forth. Yes, I definitely think it's scarier, but I've definitely had like very like articulate, well-spoken guest that, you know, maybe I felt a little fangirled on and I was just like, I don't know what my words are anymore. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> and I yeah. just like, I, you know, you leave and like, you know, you get off the call. We all do this. It's imposter syndrome. And you're just like, I don't know what I just said, but I'm sure I sounded really stupid. And then you listen to the edited playback and you're like, you know what? I really didn't at all. Like you just sat there and beat yourself up over that for no good reason. No. Yeah. Imposter syndrome is the worst. I think that if, if, if I were to ever become a motivational speaker someday, I think I like that, it. Tony I, Robbins, watch out. Watch out. Uh, I think it would be about imposter syndrome. I think that being a woman, you know, it's like we already feel like we don't fit in into a man's world. And then feeling, I, I think I feel it even more as an Asian woman, you know, growing up in a community where there were very, very, very few Asian people. I always felt so different and I always felt so invisible. I think that's another reason why podcasting was so scary for me because it, it, it forces me to not be invisible. I mean, I know you can't see my face, but it's like my voice is out there, you mm -hmm. know? And so it's like, it's like, um, you know, just, just this, all these things compounding to really make me feel like an imposter all the time. Because also, you know, when you're Asian American, you feel like an imposter in America because you're not American looking. People look at you and just assume you're a foreigner. I can't tell you how many people have told me, well, your English is so good. And it's like, well, I was born here and my English is better than my Korean, you know? And then I go to Korea and then they know you're not Korean. They know you're American immediately. Like I went there in high school and I remember I was in an elevator with these like businessmen and they were talking crap about me. They were saying in Korean, oh, look at these American people. They come here and they don't even know the culture and they can't speak Korean. And I said in Korean, excuse me, <laughs> I can speak Korean and I know what you're saying about me. You know what I mean? So it's like you're this perpetual foreigner. And I think that really leads to imposter syndrome, too. So it's like dealing with imposter syndrome on so many deep levels all the time. Oh, my gosh. I can't even imagine. So you've got it on all multiple levels. Mm -hmm. But I'm working on it. I'm working on it. Right. So inner, that inner work, inner work. It is that inner work. <laughs> So if you think everybody is born with an innately creative, what do you think about is everybody born with a sense of business and marketing? Like, do you feel like you were kind of born with that knack and that's why you've had such a successful career as a photographer and now as a podcaster? Or do you think that's something that is learned? You know, that's a really good question. I think for me, it was definitely learned because my parents owned a dry cleaning business. So it wasn't a creative business, but I really learned so much about customer service first and foremost. My mom always talked to me about customer service and how it was so important to be kind to your customers, even when they're screaming at you. Um, people would come in and 
they'd ask for my mom because my dad would lose his temper at the customers. And because, you know, customers come in, it's a dry cleaning business. So they're coming in with clothes that are dirty and ruined to begin with. And then they blame it on my parents. Yeah. You know, and so they're just dealing with or, or, or just whatever. My parents are the most honest people you'll ever meet. Um, and it's people coming in and questioning that constantly and just fighting for all different things. And so my mom really taught me about customer service. My dad would lose his temper and they'd come in and ask to talk to my mom because she was just very good. And so I just learned that. I learned very early on about business. Just if you if you are using this as your this is like your cost of goods, then sell it for this amount to have a profit. So just like really basic understanding of business. So, you know, I've had businesses selling things since I was in third grade. My very first business was called the KGL Bracelet Factory. And (laughs) (laughs) uh, we made, you know, embroidery friendship bracelets and we charged by the thread. (laughs) So you want want more colors? That's going to cost 10 cents a color, you know? Um, So I think I was just always very savvy since I was a kid and it's just learning to expand on that as an adult. And I think, you know, if you're a creative and you don't really have a knack for business, that's okay. Cause I think a lot of people don't, it's like, we just want to be making the work, but the business aspect of things, like we don't want to deal with it. I think that's why a lot of times we'll see um, artists who have their spouse as their business manager, you know, Mm -hmm. but in this day and age, there is so much incredible content that is out there for free, especially with podcasts. I love podcasts because I can feed my brain any time of the day, whether I'm driving the car, walking my dog, folding laundry, it's just so accessible. And it's like, you can learn about things you don't know about so easily. Mm-hmm. No, I mean, it's like, there's more information on any topic ever than you could ever want. And if you know, if you're feeling lacking in the marketing department, like there are 14 million podcasts to fill that void for you. Yeah. And I think it's interesting, too, because with my art director background, I just learned so much about branding, marketing, finding your USP, that's your unique selling proposition. It's like, what's the thing that's going to make you stand out? What's the story that you can tell about yourself that's going to make you stick out in the eyes of the consumer? Because really, at the end of the day, uh, laundry detergent is laundry detergent. Toothpaste is toothpaste. We call those parody products. They're literally all the same. And the only thing that's distinguishing them is brands are picking out their USP, their unique selling proposition. They're deciding this is the story we're going to tell about ourselves and we're going to run with that. And I think it's really important as people... If you want to have a creative business, like identify early on, what is your USP? What is the thing that you can say about yourself that's going to make consumers be like, hmm, I want that. I like that. I want to try that. Man, I'm like, I'm furiously taking notes. Like, <laughs> that's like, good. And, and, you know, if you want to have a really concrete example, I can use my pet photography business. So I don't have it anymore. I retired it. Um, what that means is I started my pet photography business as a family business, meaning you could hire me to take photos of your pets for just yourself, your Christmas cards, engagement photos, whatever. You could hire me. I retired that in 2014 and I transitioned into commercial and editorial photography because let's face it, you work a lot less and make a lot more money. And that's shooting images for, you know, ad campaigns and magazines and stuff like that. But when I had my Shine Pet Photos business, girl, I I was a self-taught photographer. Okay. Like I didn't go to photography school. I didn't have some like illustrious school behind me that I could brag about. I didn't have any awards. Like I literally had nothing. And I'm like, (laughs) what the heck? am I going to say about myself so that people are going to like go on Yelp and be like, yeah, that's the girl I want. I mean, obviously your, your product also should 
have its own USP, meaning like in an ideal world, you're going to have a unique voice. You're going to have a unique thing in your work that people can see and be like, that's what I want. But I was also like a brand new photographer and I wasn't really quite there yet in my, in my own personal voice and look and feel in my photography. So what I did was I played up my art director background. I'm like, well, okay, what can I say about myself? I'm an art director. So I, I have an eye for detail. I know how to compose shots and I know how to tell stories. And this is what I do at my day job. And I'm going to do this for your photography. And I think it really helped. No, I, it's so funny. You're like literally reading my next question. It's a, li, my next question. I'm going to read it to you verbatim. You are a self-taught photographer. Did you take any classes? Do you think your background in advertising helps your eye as a photographer? Like, yeah, yeah. there it is. Exactly. There it is. Yeah. It's like, what can I take from my background as an art director that's going to help me? That's going to add value to being a photographer versus me sitting there and being like, oh my God, I don't have all these things. What am I going to do? I I'm not good enough. Ooh, that imposter syndrome is kicking in. It's, Mm -hmm. hey, what do I have on the table right now in my skill set that is going to add value to what I can bring to you today as a photographer? Yeah, no, I mean, that's a part. Sometimes I think people overlook that like hidden skill set they might have as an asset. You know, they're just like, oh, I didn't even think of that. That was an added bonus. of Absolutely. I just did an um, interview with an incredible, incredible master certified coach. And she said that we have a tendency to focus on the on the negative. Our brains just want to focus on the negative because that's a survival mechanism. Right. So it's like when you're starting something new, you're going to focus on all the negative aspects of your yourself and the areas that you feel like are lacking versus really looking at the things that you're good at and bringing to the table. Yeah, I need I need to like do those like affirmations and write it down. Like remember that old like SNL guy that was like I'm good enough. I'm smart yeah, enough. Yeah. I'm good enough. I'm smart enough. <laughs> and gosh darn it, people like me. Like we all need that. No matter we what do. point in our career we are, like I everybody know. needs to hear it. I feel like it sounds so cheesy, but that's what I've really learned is like if you're not gonna be your best cheerleader, no one else is gonna do it for you. And if no, you ex- absolutely if you expect it to come from the outside, it's never gonna lead to a sustainable career. Exactly. And it's so, you know, and the other thing is too, is like, it's okay to like yourself and to like your work. Like there is nothing, there's nothing wrong with that. You know, you and I discussed like when I made jewelry, it's like I made jewelry that I wanted to wear. I liked my jewelry, you know, because like I wouldn't make something if I didn't like it. If it wasn't like a Christmas tree, I wouldn't put in my own house or a necklace that I wouldn't wear or a piece of art that I wouldn't hang on my own wall. Like, you know what I mean? I'm not going to put it out. So it's okay to like what you do. You and I, I I think that that's what you just said is like such an essential part of learning how to make money doing what you love. Because I think if you're creating something that you like and you're not seeing it out in the market, there's a hole for it, that's an opportunity for you. And so I found the same exact thing when I started my pet photography business. I saw work out there that I didn't like personally, like as a designer, as an art director, like I had a certain aesthetic that I liked and I wasn't seeing that reflected in pet photography. And so I wanted to take photos that I would want in my home where, you know, the lighting is beautiful. The dogs are in their natural setting and there's really like a story to the photo. Cause in 2008, people weren't even in the photos in pet photography. Like I Mm -hmm. very distinctly remember the day a guy was like, I want to be in like all the pictures. And I was like, God bless you. Cause now I can finally do this. <laughs> Nobody wanted to be in the pictures. So it's like, you know, getting people involved was new. 
um, putting the dogs in their home environment or the cats in the home environment and really telling a story, like a very lifestyle image, you weren't seeing that in 2008, you know? And so, like you said, it's really think about what do you want to see in the world and then make it. Yeah, no, I mean, that's a perfect a perfect way to look at it. I, you know, I don't know why I'm just like thinking of this off the top of my head. Like I have this one little cat. I have two cats. One of my cats is a total a-hole. Like I love him, <laughs> but he's just like, he just thinks he's a dog and a mean dog at that. But like every time I post a picture on my Instagram feed with that cat, like I swear, like the likes in the comments, like go through the roof. And I don't know if it's because like, he's just like chilling in my house, you know, it's kind of like the whole situation. It's like cat in his natural environment. Yeah. Uh, but it's a story. It, I know it, it's so funny now that you say that, but I'm like, if only you knew that cat is really not very nice at all. But so speaking of pets, you only do dogs, right? Do you ever do cats? I, you know, I do both. I do both. Um, when I but have mostly pet- dogs, mostly dogs for my personal projects. But when I'm doing commercial work for clients, it's really both. Yeah. Yeah. I guess like if, you know. PetSmart or whoever wants exactly. to do Fancy. gerbils. Yes. I haven't done gerbils. I would love to do gerbils. Anyone listening, <laughs> hire me for gerbils. <laughs> I'm available for gerbils. Just putting it out there. So do you think, like, I know you said, like, you saw, like, a place in the market for your style of photographs. But do you think the fact that you've, like... Am I saying this right? Niche. I'm always like, is it niche? Is it niche? I, I know, never but... knew either. Okay, good. I'm so glad I'm not alone on this. It's one of those words like you read it and you're like, in my head, this is exactly how this word sounds, but I don't know about out loud. But you know what I'm saying? Do you think like super narrowing your focus down on just pet portraits is like part of what's led to your success rather than being like, I'm just a photographer. I can do your wedding. I can do your bar mitzvah. I can do your Christmas trees and I can do your dogs. I think that is a really interesting question. And hindsight is 2020, right? Because when I started in 2008, I remember feeling like kind of dumb <laughs> for only doing pets and insisting that I would only do pets. And people would come to me and be like, I love your style. Can you do my kids? And I'd be like, no, I love your style. Can you do my wedding? Heck no. You know, I was just very <laughs> stubborn about it. And I think it's really important, especially as a photographer, to photograph what you love because mm-hmm. that connection and that empathy you feel for your subject really comes through the work that you make. And I don't love brides as much as I love dogs. So never wanted to do that. And now I feel like in 2019, everyone is talking about how the riches are in the niches, you know, yeah, niche down to really like, to really like, I don't know, like find your audience, find your tribe of people. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. That's a really good question. And I'm not sure. Cause honestly, There have been times where I thought it was a hindrance to only do pets and maybe I would be making more money if I branched out and did other things. I mean, right now, especially because I'm a mom now, I am very interested in getting into children's photography. I think it's very similar to kids. They're both animals. (laughs) It's very very similar to pets. They're both animals, right? And so... um, But I'm doing it not because I feel like there's money in it, but because I feel my heart going in that direction. But I think maybe now in 2019, everyone talks about really niching down and finding your genre because there is so much friggin' work out there. Mm -hmm. No, I I hear that too. I mean, in my industry, I hear it all the time. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I've like laid in bed nights and thought like, man, why don't I just have that like one thing that I do? You know, I joke that I'm an ADD crafter, Mm -hmm. which I've I've learned to embrace. But, you know, I know people that like 
they're knitters. Like everyone thinks of them as knitters. Like all their like deals with companies revolve around knitting. Like and people that want content about knitting, like they go to them. You know, I feel like sometimes when you base your business on like super broad strokes, you know what I mean? It's a yeah. little harder. So I go, I, I, wax, I wax and wane on it. I think in 2019 now, just based on everything you're saying, like it does help to be known as the pet photographer. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like it definitely is helpful. It's not something that I thought about back when I started, but I think just with the landscape that we're in now where there is just so much content, it's so easy to create. There's so much amazing work out there. It probably doesn't hurt to, uh, you know, really be focused on something. But at the same time, I really think the most important thing is do what you like. Don't just do something because people say that's the way to be successful. Mm-hmm. No, that's, I mean, absolutely. Like you said, like you like dogs better than brides, like, and that's half the battle. Like just saying that, like, yeah, I know that this is what I'll, it took me a long time to realize, like, you know what, like, even when I try to do normal crafts that look like they could be for everyone in America, like it still looks real damn weird to a lot of people. Like, so it took me a long time to realize, like, you know, I was that kid when I grew up, like everybody used to like tease me and call me like Punky Brewster or Rainbow Bright. And, you know, it's taken me a long time to be like, you know what, that's just me. Like, I'm never going to be normal. I'm never going to make normal stuff. I'm never going to like be fit for mass consumption and I just need to come to terms with that and like absolutely I think it is so important to own who you are own the stuff you like and just do it you know don't feel like you have to water the things you make down to make everybody like it because you're not and honestly I think that the more of a unique and distinct point of view you have the better you're gonna get your work out there and have it be seen you know I I use this analogy of like you know look at like musicians or um, chefs like they are out there with a point of view and they're not afraid to say it and that's what makes them elevate to the top and that's why we pay attention to them so for you it's like your art is what it is and that's why people love it you know like we shouldn't feel like we have to make stuff that's not really who we are, but we feel like people are going to like it more because that's not really how it works. Like I know from the outside, it might feel like that, but when you really look at it and look at the work that stands out, it's the work that is really, really unique to the person that's making it. Yeah. And people can tell, you know, when you do stuff that's like, if you were like suddenly taking pictures of brides, as that example, like people would get it. Like you're not like feeling the love as much as you were with the Totally. And I honestly, like even for me as a photographer, like I feel like, you know, I'll see trends in photography and I'm like, oh, I should be doing that. Or like, oh, like I should do this to make my work cooler. Or maybe I would get more clout and more attention and win more awards if my work had an edginess to it. And then I'm just like, wait a minute, that's not me. I'm kind of not really an edgy person and Mm -hmm. my work is very heartfelt. Like I want you to feel like you are looking into the soul of the animal when I take it. And I am going to just keep going with that because that is what's authentic to me. That's what feels good to me. And like I said, like I have moments where I'm like, God, I feel like if I was doing this, it would make me cooler. And I'm like, why? That's not me. And it would, it would resonate as fake. I think if I did it. Uh, yeah, I mean, we all do that. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I've been like, I should just be doing everything against a stark white background. Yeah. Like, those are the people that are getting giant product deals. And I'm like, oh, but I can't. I have a gallery wall and every wall in my house. Like, I just can't. Like, yeah. I got I to put, put more crap in the picture. So, yeah, I mean, you know, you find what works for you and you just you just keep on keeping on. And obviously, I mean, it's working for you in so many different ways. I was going to say this for the lightning round. But, you know, for my listeners, a few names that might prick up ears like, 
Like you've done stuff for um, Ojoy. You've done stuff with Antonio. How does he say his last name? Balatore? Balatore, yeah. Balatore, yeah, with HGTV and then Clinton Kelly from The Chew. And my daughter is one of her favorite shows. Oh. Food, Food Network Spring Baking Championship. Yes. We, are, we are big fans of all baking championships around these parts. So, yeah, I mean, you know, you just keep on keeping on because you're working with some amazing people. How is it working with celebs like that? Sure. A-holes. No, I'm kidding. No. <laughs> <laughs> I, I always say I never shoot and tell, but I always tell when they're really nice. Uh, Clinton Kelly, for example, the nicest guy. Uh, I went out to New York to do a shoot with him for Women's Day magazine because he's one of the editors on there. And it was for a story for uh, a rescue up in New York. Gosh, I can't remember the name now, but it's a wonderful rescue organization up in upstate New York where Clinton Kelly adopted his dog Mary from. So... Women's Day did an issue, a Christmas issue about adoptable pets from there. But mind you, we're shooting this in August in upstate New York where it is hot AF and humid and disgusting. And he's like wearing a sweater like it's December because it's for a December issue, you know. And he just was the nice guy. He was such a good sport he was down for anything. He is just so sweet. Like he's so funny on his Instagram. And I feel like that's how he is in real life. Oh, that's always so nice when you like meet somebody and you're like, you are just as delightful, if not more so in person. Because it's sad when I've met people where like, I'm like, oh my God, I can't wait to, wait to meet them. And then they're not at all what you think they'll be like. And it's always a little disappointing. But he was, no, no. He was a good one. Another guy I really, really appreciated was um, Blake Mykoski, the guy who founded Tom Shoes. Okay. Uh-huh. He, oh my gosh. Like he's kind of like, I feel like just a really big guy in the world of entrepreneurship like he started this whole social good thing right mm -hmm. and I met him at his home he was coming straight from the airport off of like he was coming back from a wedding or something so literally he just traveled and came straight to the photo shoot and in those circumstances like it's totally understandable if you're tired if you're short on top of the fact that you're a very very powerful successful businessman and I just always think that people like that are like time is money snapping their fingers trying to make things go faster he was so gracious and just so kind, so nice. And I just love meeting people that are wildly successful and good at what they do. And they're still like really nice human beings. Yeah. And I honestly, I think for a lot of people, that's, you know, we talk so much about like the secrets to success and the secret sauce and the this and that. And sometimes I think just not being an a-hole <laughs> and being like a nice, kind person is some of the secret sauce. I want to do an entire podcast episode on this, actually, because I really think there are two things to be successful with the creative business or with, really with any business. Number one, do good work. And number two, be a nice person. And that is it. I mean, the end period. I mean, I I can't tell you how many times a day I like recite like the golden rule. Like, I know it's old school, but it just boils down to do unto others. It <laughs> really done is. unto you. Like at the end of the day, I don't care what kind of business you're in, what you do for a living. So, and I believe in karma. So people that are kind and nice on interviews, see? It, it, you know, and especially because, you know, you've been doing this for 20 years. I've been doing this for 11 or 12 years. And I really see how do good work and be kind. You can see how that plays out when you have a very long career doing this, doing something. Do you know what I mean? Like you can mm -hmm. see how consistently doing good work and consistently being kind really helps your business keep going and have longevity. Yeah. And, you know, you and I previously had also we had talked about you know, networking and, you know, love it or hate it, 
that's, you know, another way and place where like if you're, you know, sometimes think people think of the word networking as a bad word. But when you're like meeting people or, you know, whether it's a, a client or you're at like an actual networking event, I think sometimes like you can pick up if people are like truly nice people or if they're just like schmoozy like d-bags you know what i mean like you're just like you know you can just tell and so it's like you know again just be nice just be like a good person i agree and i think with networking you know i think approaching it as friendship versus Mm -hmm. what can i get out of this person is really the best approach because even with friendship you don't want to look at someone and be like what can i get out of them you know and so networking is the same exact thing like the rules don't just stop applying because you're networking and you're in a professional setting you know and so it's like i feel like when i get to know somebody on sort of more human level and develop a friendship with them that reaps far more rewards than doing it any other way like i wouldn't know how to network any other way really and i think having had this long career, I can see how that really pays off. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think people that have had long careers, whether they know they do that or not, that's just how they've approached, mm-hmm. you know, all, all business engagements with that attitude. Yeah. Cause you know, sometimes people reach out to me and they just want to get to know me. And I love that because I'm an introvert by nature, but I'm an extrovert when it comes to my business. And so Mm -hmm. I love meeting new people, doing cool things. And I just love talking to them. And Instagram is such an amazing way to do that. Like I met you, you know, Mm -hmm. and I, I love that. But then when people come to me, like I've had pet photographers who just message me or I remember one girl, she emailed me and I don't even know who she is. She just emailed me and goes, oh, I saw you retired from Shine Pet Photos. So can you just send all your clients my way? And I'm like, I don't even know you. Like, why would I do that? You know, not, you haven't spent the time to cultivate like a personal relationship with me. Why would I do that? Right. It's like, I'm going to send you a link to Social Nuances 101 <laughs> right. it's a podcast episode. <laughs> right. <laughs> no, yeah, I know. And, you know, and I think a lot of things that people, you know, another topic that a lot of people don't discuss necessarily is when you are a creative entrepreneur or a solopreneur, it can be kind of lonely in a way. I'm sure a lot of people, you know, I'm naming off these celebrities, like, you know, people might think like, you're just hanging out on the set, like wind blowing a fan and Beyonce playing and you're taking pictures of these adorable pets. But I'm sure for you, a lot of your time is actually spent all by your lonesome. Same for me. You know what I mean? I spend a lot of time like alone. So it's like, you know, places like Instagram or even Facebook groups are a great way to, you know, connect and meet other like-minded people online. I I totally agree. It's a great way to meet other very lonely creative solopreneurs. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. I mean, don't get me wrong. I wouldn't have it any other way. I don't want to put on makeup and go out too much. I'm happy with me and my Netflix and my laptop. Same. It's nice. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, you mentioned you've been doing it for 11, almost 12 years. Before we wrap up, I did want to touch on burnout. I've told my story of how, you know, I made jewelry for forever in a day. And then I just got to the point where I was like, please, God, don't ever make me touch another bead in my life. Um, How do you prevent like creative burnout when it comes to, you know, your pet photography? Yeah. You know, when I had my shine pet photography business, I was so burned out doing that because it's like, 
my income was so tied to the amount I was working and the number of shoots I was booking. And so, you know, I'm cramming in shoots. And I remember like, I couldn't even enjoy Christmas, right? Because everybody needs Christmas stuff Mm -hmm. and they yesterday. And I remember there were years where I was working up until like a week before Christmas. And I'm just like, answering to every beck and call in need of clients. And that just leads to complete burnout. And I think that for me, I have a little bit more space now just by the nature of the type of business that I have now because I'm a commercial photographer. But I really take the time to honor having slowness and space in my life. And sometimes if I wake up and I feel that burnout creeping in for me, it just feels like anxiety and like a knot in my stomach. And I feel like I might like, I feel like something's like boiling and rising in me. I'll like go watch a movie, you know, I'll be like, Mm -hmm. these emails can wait. I'll go watch a movie or, or I'll go to a garden and walk around and meditate and journal. Like I'm a very fast paced person by nature. And anytime there's an opening in my life, I just intuitively fill it with something. And I've learned, um, to really avoid burnout. Like I need to appreciate the slow time and almost like purposely make slowness in my life. So it's really slowing down, going to watch a movie and my personal projects. Like even though that's work, it's work for myself. So I'll shoot photo product projects that are just for me and nobody else. I don't have clients to answer to. I can make it exactly the way I want it. And that in and of itself feels like a form of meditation. Yeah, no, absolutely. Do you consider your podcast like another outlet to no. you know kind of t- <laughs> I know. It's like in theory, yes. But realistically, like it's a whole nother job. No, it is a whole nother job. Um, I feel like I'm fighting burnout with the podcast just because, you know, this summer I've I've been traveling nonstop since Memorial Day weekend. And so just consistently getting a show out every Monday, rain or shine, I am committed to it. My husband's like, dude, just take a break. Just skip it. But I can't. I don't know if it's the type A in me or just this commitment I made. I'm like, I can't. And so I'm coming back back from my trips, you know, on a Saturday or Sunday and trying to finish everything up in a very short amount of time to get it out by Monday. And it's burning me out. It's it's a grueling schedule to be a podcaster. So it is. I it's, know. It's, then you yeah, got hard. you get thinking like, why did I say this was gonna be weekly? I know. <laughs> like my producer tried to warn me. She tried to tell me to do it every other week. And I was like, no, uh-uh. like that every other week is for quitters. Like and That's how I feel. And you know, honestly, the only <laughs> thing that is keeping me going is because I genuinely love doing it. I don't want it to sound like, you know, this is like, I don't want to do it anymore. Like the only reason I'm able to make it through this grind right now is because I love it so much. And I love these conversations like I have with people like you so much. And that's why I'm so committed to it. But it is hard. <laughs> no, I hear you. It's me too. I mean, you know, talk about like preventing the part that prevents the creative burnout is getting to have conversations with cool people like you every week. So definitely got to think of it as something you're excited about, not something you're dreading, just <laughs> like, you know, just like the life coach person. Exactly. So. All right. Well, I'm going to wrap up with the last question that I ask everybody. So I saw on your bio that it says you make a mean guacamole, but how are your queso skills? Or if we would go out and have queso, where would we go? Can I be totally honest? What, I don't, are you going to tell me you've never had queso? <laughs> yes. I don't think I've ever had queso before. I don't even 
really know what it is. I think it's like a cheese dip. It is. A, see, this is the thing. Like, I'm the worst at picking out names for things. Like, hence Naughty Secretary Club, which everybody thought, like, I like suddenly had a porn career. Same thing with Creative Queso. I was like, everybody knows what queso is, right? And, like, the more I do this, I'm realizing that there's not. You know, interestingly, if you ever come to Austin, there is a guy here who has, like, a Korean fusion restaurant. And he has a kimchi queso. I can't like I can't speak to it but you know I've not had it but it does sound interesting what is it is it like cheese whiz (laughs) I mean ish but it's you know it's not as congealed as a cheese whiz it's like you know like you know what Velveeta is yes like if you melt Velveeta and then put like a can of like diced tomatoes in there so it's kind of like salsa meets liquid cheese and you dip chips in there like in austin in texas it's like it's like big in the tex-mex community like we live for it here like every restaurant has it like if i'm telling you they've got like a kimchi version like literally every restaurant's got a version of the thai restaurant down the street has a thai queso (laughs) wow you can't throw a rock i'm surprised they don't offer it like at mcdonald's here oh that sounds yummy i just like want to swim in it well, next time it is delicious. And next time I come to L.A. or you come here, I will track you down and we will find you queso because it breaks my heart to think of you of never having it. OK, if I ever see you're in L.A., I'm going to play back that clip and be like, I need my queso. Oh, I will make it happen. Okay. <laughs> Don't you worry. Well, Grace, beyond me just like leaving you feeling sad that you haven't had queso, I am so excited that we got to chat today. This was amazing. Thank you so much for having me on. I love your show. Oh, I love yours back. Back at you and then some. And thank you again. And everybody, be sure to go check out all of Grace's adorable pet photography and subscribe to her podcast, Creativity School. So many great takeaways from this episode and lots to think about. If you want to hear more from Grace Chan, and of course you do, don't forget to pop over to her website, gracechan.com, and she can be found on Instagram at thegracechan. Plus, while you are here in your favorite podcast app, right after you rate and review Creative Queso, because of course you are, why not go and subscribe to Grace's podcast, Creativity School? My episode is coming. Soon. Did you guys know I have an Amazon store with sections like craft supplies, podcasting tools, and all the books from the guests I've had here on the Creative Queso podcast? Purchasing anything through my Amazon store helps support this podcast and keep queso on my table. The URL is amazon.com backslash shop backslash Jennifer Perkins. You can find links to both of Grace Chan's pet photography books and more. Thank you guys so much for hanging out and listening today. If you're new here, please take a second to go back through the archives and check out interviews with all the inspiring people like Mondo Guerra of Project Runway, Gabrielle Blair, the founder of Alt Summit, and Abby Glassenberg of the Craft Industry Alliance. Plus, don't forget to head over to creativecaso.com where you can check out the show notes for all of the episodes and read our fun interview series, Taco About It Tuesday, where I chat with gardeners, interior stylists, brick and mortar store owners, and more. Thank you to my producer, Mariah Gossett, and to Chris Beck for the music. 
And I'll see y'all next time, same time, same place.